Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Allison Knight, Senior Lecturer in Early Modern Studies in the Department of English at the Royal Holloway University of London. And uh, I'm excited to talk about her book, The Dark Bible, Cultures of Interpretation in Early Modern England. Uh, Dr. Knight, wonderful to have you on today. Hi, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, so talk to us a little bit, why this book? Why do we need to understand these cultures of interpretation in early modern England? So why this book? It's a tricky one. It uh, emerged out of my PhD work on the book of Job um, in early modern England. Um, you know, I and the way it was used in, in literature in early modern England. Um, and the reason I focused on that book when I was doing my PhD was because it's such a hard book. Um, it's not just in terms of content, you know, that, that impossible question of, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, but also the way it's written. Um, the 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 Hebrew, the um, the text itself is 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 you know, and the different versions of it have exist are kind of quite difficult to interpret. St. Jerome said that it was, uh, that the book was slippery like an eel. You know, when you try to grab hold of it, it just slides through your fingers, basically. And I love that. Um, it's, I, I really like those kinds of difficult, um, hard to grapple with, hard to understand questions. And you know, the book of Job, the, the, the book that I've written, The Dark Bible, it's not just about Job, but that's kind of what got me started on it. Um, it's that book is the book of Job is a book about questions. You know, the friends Job is asking, he responds in questions. The friends respond to that with more questions. Um, when God finally emerges from the whirlwind, he doesn't provide answers. He just provides more questions. Um, one of which is, you know, very apt for this podcast, which is, um, you know, can, canst thou draw Leviathan out with a hook? Which is a, a way of kind of saying like these answers, you can't handle these answers. This <laughs> is too big for you. You can't, you can't deal with it. So, um, yeah, so I'm really interested. That got me started on thinking about questioning questions and questioning approaches and difficulty and how, um, especially in the Protestant Reformation, a time that was, you know, very much about in some ways about certainty. Um, and was very much arguing, you know, one of Luther's core precepts was that the Bible was clear, that it was, that it shines with clarity, that anyone can understand it, that you don't require the interpretive apparatus of the church in order to explain the Bible to you. You can just have a direct relationship with it. So, you know, th this is kind of a, a founding precept of the Protestant Reformation. So how does it deal with the fact that the Bible can be very challenging, actually? You know, not all of it, but a lot of it. Um, so, yeah, that was really what got me started on the book was how did people in this time when the Bible was meant to be illuminatingly clear, 
how did they deal with the fact that sometimes it, it, it maybe wasn't? Yes. Yeah. And one, uh, I think I wrote this in the email, God bless you for saying Job. Uh, every time, like, uh, that's where I got Chasing Leviathan from was from Job. But I've gotten Hobbes, Melville, Milton, I think just because of the painting of Satan being cast down from heaven, um, all those things. And so, uh, uh, and that's, it's precisely what you said about it's these questions that are too big and uh, this idea that um, we can just keep like that for the podcast about pursuing truth. Um, and I'm actually, it's funny that you, you mentioned that I'm actually reading through it's going to take a while, um, but uh, Moralia in Job by Gregory the Great. Oh, gosh. Um, wow. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that's pretty it's amazing, amazing collection of uh, homilies, but very, um, yeah, very long and uh, very much uh, in the spirit of uh, these kind of dark interpretations. Um, <laughs> so, uh, ha so I, and I think you, you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, is it Tyndale? shoot, I should know that off, uh, but talks about uh, the Bible being guarded off and the, these fences. And so can you talk a little bit about um, these kind of like counter metaphors of, of darkness that, uh, or, or uh, brambles or hedges that uh, people would use um, to describe these difficult passages? Yeah, I mean, and Tyndall is such a surprising one that because he is one that tends to use more frequently um, the, the much more common metaphor for the Bible, which is light, lanterns, you know, a candle, um, that, that it's something that's illuminating. But then you'll still find people like Tyndall who, you know, Tyndall describes it as, yeah, a hedge of briars and darkness and a maze and kind of a labyrinth that you can get lost in if you don't take the right approach to it. Um, so many amazing metaphors um, for, you know, how we negotiate the Bible. Um, Theodore Beza also describes that it's kind of like that the Bible has these lurking rocks under the surface that are kind of waiting to shipwreck you. Um, yeah. So, and these are, again, reformers who are very much, you know, more commonly describing the Bible as this source of light, of illumination. And so that's why... I was kind of interested in the in the dark side of it, um, dark in the sense of obscure, you know, hard to understand. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people worry or or, or perhaps interested and think that I'm, I'm writing about kind of occult approaches, and that's not what the book is about. Um, Although I have also written an article on uh, how people approach scripture that seems rude, or how you know how you deal with scripture that's just a little like ooh. <laughs> Um, because uh, I mean, it 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 deals with every aspect of humanity, right? And there's and there's some parts in it that you know, just like humans are not always savory. Um, there are definitely parts of it that 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 make that make a person blush. But um, yeah, that's not what this book is about. It's it's about darkness <laughs> as as obscurity and 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 that difficulty and kind of trying to wrap your head around like what does this mean. And what, uh, you know, um, as they're walking through this, these people who are championing this light, and then they start talking about the darkness, what did, what value did they find in um, the, these passages that were dark? And what value did they find in this darkness as obscurity? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I think a lot of the time, they're really invested in kind of pretending that they're not there, that those dark places aren't there, um, because they, 
you know, the, the very much reformers had this project of, of trying to make the case that everyone can read the Bible. And it was often the, the argument of people who, who didn't want that to say, you know, it's too difficult for people. They're going to misunderstand it. So it, it, was, it was often, you know, a very divided approach of, of not necessarily wanting to admit that, that there were difficult patches, that there were any problems that people might encounter. But then also when people did encounter those patches to say like, oh, no, it's normal. Don't worry. You can get through them. Um, and yeah, there might be some, some benefits to it. And there were all sorts of benefits that, that various Protestants would talk about. Um, like the fact that it's a good thing to have to turn to somebody else for expertise, you know? So instead of it being framed as like, oh, you know, you, you don't know what's going on in the Bible. You have to turn to a priest in the church to tell you. It's kind of like, oh, isn't it great how the difficulties of the Bible make you turn, make you turn to your to your priest and make you turn to this wider community to to provide some explanation. Um, that also dark patches make you kind of build bonds between people. That you know, that's when you're going to talk about problems. You're going to um, reach out to other people in charity um, with one another to kind of help each other through the difficult um, interpretations. Um, but then, yeah, what I'm also looking at in in the book is the ways that these can be as well moments that spur creativity, that spur different kinds of relationships with God that can um, and, and with the Bible itself, that it can pro it can provoke a, a deeper kind of relationship. There's one example that I look at on the chapter on um defects in scripture. So these are these are passages where there there might be words missing, there might be kind of necessary grammatical elements of verses that are that aren't there and kind of need to be filled in a little bit. Um, and a preacher called Daniel Featley preaches a sermon on one such um passage, Hosea 13:9, I believe. No, I'm not great with numbers. The numbers always fly right out of my head. But um so he, and what he says about this is that he compares these gaps in the biblical account that people are struggling with to like the rests between musical notes in a song. Um, or um, he, he compares it to um, a, a classical painting called um, The Sacrifice of Iphigenia. That's um, where her, the, in order to, you know, the artist, in order to, to kind of represent grief beyond expression paints her father with a veil over his face uh, and that that this is that these veiled moments are actually even more expressive of god's truth um because they're they're are these moments that that you have to fill in and the only way you can do that is through a deeper relationship with the text and a deeper taking to heart of of what's going on in the text and then you can kind of fill those gaps as a as a relationship as opposed to just kind of like finding your way in the darkness um so yeah there's definitely advantages to uncertainty um both uh kind of in terms of how they were viewing and understanding the church and also in, in terms of kind of creativity and human relationship and all those fun things uh, do you see any relationship between uh, kind of the, uh, it, you know, it, it, 
some of the timing can be a little bit off, but like the scientific revolution and that certainty and some of the stuff that's going on with uh, like the Protestant uh, theology. Yeah, certainty and kind of approaches to rationality um, tend to come about later in the in the 17th century. But as I'm so my book is I'm trying to because what we we tend to say that the 17th century later in the 17th century, the second half of the 17th century, moving into the 18th century is when people discovered that the Bible was had had perhaps some critical problems with it that that meant that you couldn't just treat it necessarily as a transparent window into truth that bible the bible wasn't necessarily your access point for understanding philosophical truth in particular that's how that gets framed um, as we go later into the 17th century um and um Definitely what I'm trying to do is establish more of a prehistory to that, that, you know, the 17th, later 17th century wasn't when people discovered that the Bible could be, could have some approaches that needed some critical eye, uh, that needed a critical eye. But, um, but I do think that there was certainly something different in how the 16th century and early 17th century was tending to uh, approach some of these issues. Um, I suppose what I'm saying is that people knew that these issues were there, but they just had different sets of answers that were kind of acceptable. So um, something like contradiction, which is what I look at in the first chapter. In, in the, you know, prior to the later 17th century, people were you know, very much tying themselves in really fascinating interpretive knots to reconcile parts of the Bible that seemed, that they always stressed it in terms of it, it only seems, but that seemed to contradict one another. Because it was very much an interpretive precept about how you approach the Bible. And this wasn't just in, in the Protestant Reformation. It was very much like set down um, by, well, Augustine was one of the most kind of noted proponents of this view, but that something called the analogy of faith, you know, this is expressed even in, you know, the, the New Testament, that the, the faith is always analogous with itself, that it's always, you know, all parts of the Bible have to fit within one another and have to belong, um, have to be reconcilable with one another because, you know, God is singular. God is unified with himself. He's not going to be expressing different things in different parts of the Bible. If it has the singular author, it has to be unified overall. So what do you do with contradictions? Um, and the, the uh, working from that precept of contradictions cannot exist, that's how we have to approach the text. That, and if they seem to be, we're going to have to find a way to work it out, to to find a, a, a way of reconciling and finding a singular story here. As you get into uh, later into the 17th century, second half of the 17th century, you start to have people saying like, well, it must just be contradictory. Maybe it's contradictory because it's contradictory. Um, so there start to be a different set of answers that become more acceptable, even though the, it's, it's grappling with the same issues. Um, and those answers start to then, as you go into the 18th century, 19th century, start to spur different approaches like, you know, 
even leads to approaches like the documentary hypothesis that, you know, maybe some, some of these are coming from the fact that different authors and different time periods were involved in kind of the um, building up of a text of, of different books of the Bible over long processes. And maybe that's an explanation for some of these things. Um, so, yeah, just often, you know, same old problems, new answers. Um, in terms of the scientific rev revolution, I mean, it's, it, it was always very much, again, you know, what comes first for the, in the Protestant Reformation, the early modern period there, it wasn't as if people were saying that science didn't exist, but was it a, um, did it take priority over God's truth? You know, no, was basically the answer that any, truth that you were finding through observation of the natural world had to also be reconcilable with truth that was understood to be revealed through the Bible. And as we move, you know, later into the 17th century, into the 18th century, that starts to change. Again, what, where, what is truth? How do we know what is true? Is it through observation of the natural world and coming up with laws on the basis of that? Or is it, you know, God's law and the natural world's going to have to fit in with that. Yeah, and I, so I'm like one of the big names here in talking about late 70s. So this is like, we're talking Spinoza, right? Like the theologico-political treatise, right? When you're talking about this, like, you know, maybe it is just uh, contradictory. Like, and, and uh, you know, I, 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 even as you're talking about this, you, uh, you have people who are acknowledging problems, people who are claiming clarity. And it's it's interesting to see kind of the story of this, right? Um, and then they're like, we can figure it out a different way by talking about it, and then everyone will understand what how all this works. And then after about several, like about a hundred years of like religious wars, they're like, maybe, maybe not, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> maybe not. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, it is very much the case that. Throughout the 16th century, that does seem to be the the assumption that if if only people if only my opponents would see things from my point of view if only I you know I could spell things these things out then they would see the truth here but they they've been blinkered and blinded by you know, the fact that I mean it was it was again it's what comes first um, it was very much framed as there's no way you could possibly recognize the truth if you didn't have right faith to start with. So if you're coming from the position of, of having the wrong, of not believing in the right thing, then of course you're not going to understand the truth. Um, so, um, you know, but when both sides have that, have that yeah, assumption, right. then it's, it's, it, it it's not going to, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so yeah, you automatically assume that uh, your opponent is operating in bad faith, you know, like you, uh, this is where you get like the, the, rampant use of uh romans one like suppressing the truth and unrighteousness you know what i mean it's like well that's just because you're a bad person that's why you disagree with me you know it's like, I, like yeah you see that with martin luther right like it's like it starts off like he's like oh we could reach an agreement and then like by the end you're like uh he he definitely <laughs> anyways sorry yeah I, 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 I wanted to I wanted to make sure I stay on on your book. I'm sorry I'm geeking out a little bit, but the um, you mentioned contradiction, and I did want to ask uh, because he is such a notorious figure, but also he's like in many ways a very misunderstood 
figure, uh, Henry VIII, uh, the, his great matter, Leviticus versus Deuteronomy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and I think, I mean, so that was, you know, this is early in the kind of Reformation, and people in that at that time weren't quite sure how all how all of this was going to go, um, and it's very much. Um, what I think is interesting about that is, and there are a lot of people have written on the divorce and, you know, what caused it. Um, and there's so many different points of, of argumentation in there. Um, there's so many factors that lead into it. But what I think is interesting is that he did consistently frame his scruples about his marriage to Catherine of Aragon in scriptural terms, that it was, it was always, a, a, you know, framed as a question of hermeneutics. Um, you know, yes, absolutely. That that question of Leviticus versus Deuteronomy. Leviticus says that you must not marry, do not marry your brother's wife. De- Deuteronomy says you must marry your deceased brother's widow and provide children in his, you know, uh, in his name. And Catherine of Aragon, of course, was married to Henry's brother um, for a few months. Um, Henry's older brother, Henry was the second son. He wasn't supposed to be king. Um, Henry's older brother passed away after only, um, you know, a few, not not even a few months, just a few weeks, really, of, of marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And, you know, Henry VII uh, doesn't, didn't want to lose Catherine of Aragon's sizable dowry, which had only been half paid at that point. And so um, she stays around in the country for, for quite a while. And then when Henry VIII becomes king, he marries her um, and gets a papal dispensation for this because of that previous marriage to uh, his, his, his brother. Then after 20, you know, fast forward 20 years, is it because Catherine hasn't provided a male heir? Is it because Henry's had, you know, that, that Anne Boleyn has caught his eye? Um, but what he frames it as is that he's now started to have the scruple of conscience because of Leviticus, that Leviticus has said, you know, you cannot marry your brother's wife um, or and specifically, you know, do not reveal the nakedness of your of your brother's wife. And that if you do this, you will not have children. Um, and so he's seeing this as an explanation for why um, perhaps he's not had an heir. Um, and it basically, this is an example of where a, an apparent seeming contradiction in scripture and both sides of the debate were very much, you know, that it was just a, an apparent contradiction, um, that, that it, it became an apparent contradiction of scripture becomes a world, you know, across the world stage, or at least across the European stage, um, and is argued about across Christendom. Um, and the arguments that pile up on this, I mean, reams and reams of, of, of words, of paper, of, of opinions going about. The Pope even, you know, at one point says, no one is allowed to write any more opinions about this on pain of ex- excommunication because <laughs> they just stop. Um, but um, yeah, and what... Yeah, so the fact that this was this was very much an exegetical question, you know, how do we approach scripture and how do we weigh? Um, because of course, you know, Henry frames it as Leviticus says I can't do this, but Catherine's side brings in Deuteronomy and says, no, 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 not only can you, you have to. Um, so how those 
those that that seeming contradiction is is reconciled is um is crucial to how the the divorce goes on um and you know one of the things i say in the book is that it's it tells us so much about how uh, about approaches to scriptural hermeneutics in that time. So, you know, for example, approaches to the Hebrew text was um, really emerging. Um, and you're really starting to see crucial arguments to and uh, for and recourses to the original text of Hebrew um, that, that quite a few of what have been defined as kind of crucial early defenses of returning to the Hebrew sources and using those as a, a reliable way to elucidate what the text really means uh, are being written in the context of the divorce and trying to explain um you know how we should really try to fit these two verses together um it's it's also very much that that you know that kings and and high politics weigh on how we approach understanding the text of the bible um, but another thing that I think is really important there is that, that you know, the, the way that people have tended to view the divorce, and certainly people have talked about scripture in it before, but because they've been talking more about what scripture, approaches to scripture can tell us about the divorce, and I'm looking at more what the divorce can tell us about approaches to scripture, <laughs> um, it's, uh, the people have tended to focus on kind of like who won that, the scriptural argument there. And what I say is no, nobody won the scriptural argument um, with, the, with Henry VIII's great matter. It, he just made a new church. Nobody, you know, down tools and was like, oh, yes, you are right. This, this is, this, you got the answer. You hit it. Um, it just, you know, each side amasses the, 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 this opinion. And they're, they're, you know, and it's, I mean, it really is fantastic how much they, decide what their opinion is and, and they amass opinions to support it and kind of, you know, you're wrong if you just think the other way. Like, so Henry get, and Catherine's side did this as well. Uh, the emperor, her, her nephew, Charles V also consult both of them, Henry and um, Catherine's side consult all the universities of, of Europe, basically to amass all this, uh, these opinions about, you know, which one, <laughs> Leviticus or Deuteronomy, which one? Um, and, um, and that wasn't an unusual thing, you know, to get a university opinion weighing in on uh, a particular issue. But um, what Henry especially really wanted to establish was consensus. Because this is the point that these, these verses can't contradict. So it doesn't help to just say, oh, well, these people say this and these people say that. So I want consensus. So he very much frames it as that it's framed as he doesn't want all, uh, he doesn't want the best theologians. He wants all of them. Um, and he publishes, he pub, um, under, um, on behalf of Henry, he's published um, a report of these um, universities' decisions about, okay, which first takes priority here, which, you know, uh, what applies in this case rather than takes priority because of course all scripture is equally important but right, um, right. but um, <laughs> but which takes priority in this which applies in this instance and he publishes it and it's published and um and it's 
oh, look at this universal consent to all the universities of Christendom that all agree that it's that basically Leviticus is is applies in this case, and Henry shouldn't have married his wife. But he really, what happened was he just didn't pub. They didn't publish the ones that were received in the negative. <laughs> so he just leaves those ones out. Um, Convenient, so, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it 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 definitely shows how even at the start of this period, you know, you mentioned before that you've got a hundred years where at the end of it, people, you know, you might say it's kind of just gotten to the point of exhaustion and maybe people might realize you can't just keep shouting. I think this against, I think that, but it, the, the period starts that way. <laughs> it keeps on going that way. Yes. And there's a really fantastic work, um, a book by Nicholas Hardy called Criticism and Confession, which is looking at, um, that later kind of, um, you know, not just the second half of the seventeenth century, but more into the seventeenth century. This period where you tends to be thinking of cri- biblical criticism and being built on kind of um, rational argumentation and all that, and he's showing how very much it's still very much a confessional issue. Um, fantastic book, but it keeps on being that 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 confession that someone's religious beliefs, that the beliefs they start out with, basically, you know, with Henry. With his case, the beliefs that they started out with about who was right and who was wrong shape um, exactly all the arguments that you're making that that, that you can't just kind of um, be be just rational about these things as much as people might um, frame it in those terms that confession very much is a d- huge driver to these arguments. Um, and so that's, I guess, returning to that kind of scientific question again, um, or perhaps in a different way, um, talking about issues of secularization, we might call it, you know, the, the emerge of rationalization um, is secularization. These are kind of different words for saying that your religious beliefs shouldn't, should be, should come from the evidence that's before you not shouldn't shape the evidence and people in the Protestant Reformation in, before would have absolutely agreed with that 100% by the way like they would have completely agreed that no 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 your your beliefs come from the text but equally um that that you, you know you can't you can't get out from underneath it because it it shapes everything about how you understand the text to work all of your priorities about how these things um, how how the Bible makes meaning are shaped by the beliefs that you bring to it, even as they are shaping the beliefs that you have. So um, as you get on into rationalization, or rationality, secularization, you know, secularization, you can talk about that in terms of, you're, you can still be, in the 19th century in particular, you can still be looking at religious topics and you can still have a religious point of view, but the way that you approach argumentation is meant to be, able to convince someone who has completely different religious views that you could that you can kind of take the religious views out of the equation and still be convincing even if they're still there (laughs) which yeah so (laughs) kind of getting tied up in knots as i often do when you're talking especially the divorce you know they were tied up in knots everyone was tied up in knots with it because that was the point was so confusing how do we wade through this Yes. And it definitely, it feels confusing. Um, though if one were a little, um, perhaps uncharitable in their own interpretation of the situation, 
Uh, it's like, oh, wow, we followed Deuteronomy when only half the dowry was paid. But once the dowry was paid in full, we want to follow Leviticus and, and Spain, who has paid the dowry and sees their, the, their daughter or cousin as an asset is, um, oh, no, 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 it's definitely Deuteronomy. You know, <laughs> it's like, all of a sudden that seems a little clear. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, they didn't frame that Catherine staying in England as, as a question of Deuteronomy because most, that was, that was the thing, like, there was more that people were like, you can't bring in Deuteronomy now. Like no one practices Deuteronomy, like, it's called leveret marriage, wherein you have to marry your, your, um, sis, your sister-in-law, the, the widow of your deceased brother. Like no one practices that. So no one was making that argument. So th- this was something that Henry's side was very much saying, like, you can't bring that in all of a sudden now. Like no, <laughs> nobody uses that. Um, but, um, and so, and that was very much framed as a question of, you know, which parts of the Old Testament still apply to Christian, to, to Christian believers at that time. Like, what do we actually have to take from this as, um, uh, something that we still have to follow and what can we say? Well, that was just for, it was a different time. That's just for them. Um, so that was a, a real question as well. Um, just to add to the complexity, but yeah, no, in Catherine's case, I think that was very much a case that was, you know, her father (laughs) didn't want to return that, uh, didn't want to pay the rest of the dowry. Um, and, Henry didn't want to give up the half that had been given and wanted to get the other. So she was very much in just, this is off topic, but she was very much just in a limbo for a good while. But she actually became one of the first female ambassadors um, as a result of that, which kind of happened just because we're like, well, we need to have a name, a role for her. She can't just be the Dowager um, Princess of Wales. So, um, but so she, yeah, I mean, an amazing, wonderful woman who did, some fantastic things and argued, you know, very staunchly for her rights in this period, um, which was part of this really fascinating um, story of interpretation. Um, And uh, just as, again, as a little side note, I always refer to it as the divorce, not the annulment. A lot of people make the argument now that you should call it the annulment because that's what Henry wanted. He didn't want a divorce. Um, He wanted... Uh, uh, just that this marriage was null and void; it had never been allowed, so it had never taken place. And actually, Catherine's side was always very adamant of like, let's call a spade a spade. You want a divorce, and they always use the frame the the words of divorce. And so, I mean, it, you know, I guess it comes down to whose side are you on? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but um, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's pretty amazing. That five hundred years later, like. Uh, whose side you're on still matters. Yeah. The, um... <laughs> and it does. And sometimes, you know, th- that that's always so fascinating. You can see these little lights of people just kind of distilling it down to things like that. Like, um, so after the consultation with all the universities, Henry also then, you know, um, most likely on Cranmer's suggestion, extended that question to the Protestant, to the reformers, to the magisterial reformers at the time. So like Luther and Ecolampadius and Butzer and um, all these um, newly emerging Protestant figures. And they did not agree. Um, So this is, you know, we say you can still see continuities in terms of people are still kind of forming their, their arguments around what their beliefs are. But equally at this time, 
this is, you know, kind of an early days of the Reformation, and there's not really a clear camp of what everyone thinks. So they're writing letters, the, the reformers are writing letters to themselves, and really reformers have, are kind of evenly split on what they think about this whole thing. So, and even amongst the, you know, Henry supporters, Catherine supporters, there's not necessarily a clear cut, cut split in terms of doctrine, because those things all get a little bit more solidified later on down the picture where there's already, okay, now we have a clear set of doctrines and a clear articulation of what everyone believes. And we'll kind of have camps as opposed to just, we're all trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, But um, what, so just to return to that point about seeing these, these moments where sometimes people do just really seem to distill through all the confusion. And yeah, Luther basically says, it just comes down to, you know, conscience. And he says, she said, because, you know, whether or not Catherine had consummated her marriage with Eric, with um, with Arthur was a was a big issue, too. But he just like, it comes down to whose conscience you rely on more, Catherine's or Henry's. And I rely more on Catherine's. So there you <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and all of this, too, the, the complexity uh, goes back to your earlier point of uh, they were like, everyone is talking about God's law in this and everyone takes for granted that like the curse of Leviticus is something to be uh, like that, that has causal power versus like scientific, you know, like it was like, or maybe, maybe Henry can't have kids that might be, you know, but that's uh, and so that's part of the complexity uh, is this um, that God's law over science. Like you were talking about earlier, a king not able to have children. Are you kidding? No. <laughs> it must be the wife's fault, right? Yeah. yeah that's obviously. <laughs> obviously. Um, um, yeah. Well, yeah, but why I, would God put but, in on the throne someone who can't have children? Come on now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. There's all these things. It's like, uh, I mean, that almost takes us back to, to Joe, but it's like, like, you know, if you actually read that a little more carefully, maybe you would see like, God doesn't always just like line things up like that. But, you know, um, the... Go ahead. But you tell Henry that. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, right, right. I think some people did. I don't think it worked out well for them. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, it's actually something I want to make a connection with. Uh, I had an earlier episode that uh, is coming out soon on um, Carolingian uh, medicine and religion, how they're tied together. And one of the it's uh, Dr. Leia, and she talked about the transmission of manuscripts, and she was showing like the prehistory of. Um, how the classics were kept alive, but, and they, there were definitely people who were interested in the original languages. It was just that you had to hand copy them and what a difference that made. And so I wonder if you, you could talk about a little bit of the impact you, you're talking about Henry's desire to get um, uh, a consensus was relatively new, like this universal consensus. And how much of that is tied to the ability to actually achieve consensus because of the printing press? Well, so actually, I would say that the desire to achieve consensus is not new. I'd say that that actually is a really a hangover from really older methods of how do you handle um, religious disputes, basically. Because I mean, that's very much like a from the late antique period into the medieval period you know and it comes down to the question that we that i think we've been talking about this this in our whole discussion is you know where does truth come from how do you know what truth is and for 
the way that this was framed in, in Christian hermeneutics writ large over the long term was, you know, you know what is true based on God's revelation in the Bible. Um, but then also his revelation through individuals. Um, and so, you know, this, this is in terms of the, the, the prophets and then later into kind of um, saints, etc. So for the Catholic Church, you have the written truth in scripture, and then you also have unwritten verities they're called in, um, you know, what major, what major figures in the, the apostles, what knowledge they had and passed on verbally with one another within the longer tradition of the church. So then if you have any disputes about um, what that tradition, what that truth as revealed in scripture and um, as kind of passed on through figures like the apostles, if you have disputes about, about it, then how do you resolve that? One of the ways is with church councils. Um, so like the Council of Nicaea, for example, that was formed to really resolve the disputes about the personhood of Christ and the divinity of Christ. Um, but aside from councils, the other way that you establish um, you know, what route to take in a, dispute, in a dispute is through what was called the consensus of the fathers. So you go and look at the fathers and you say, okay, what have the major thinkers, the major theologians said about these issues? But the difficulty with, you know, okay, we'll, we'll just turn to the fathers and we'll see what the church fathers have said. The difficulty with that is they don't always agree. <laughs> it's exactly the, the <laughs> right. same problem that we're seeing with, with the divorce and getting opinions um, is, is that the church fathers don't always agree. So then what do you do? You look for the consensus of the fathers. So what do most of the fathers have to say? So sorry, this is all probably very, um, you know. No, this is great. Um, but so what is... I mean, the, uh, obviously... Uh, so I was going to say, obviously, we like this has no value for today because we don't struggle with uh, how religion and truth interact today at all, right? Um, Surely no, not. not at all. <laughs> Sorry, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I am listening, and this is no, this is good. This is good. At least I'm enjoying it. So please continue. Well, look, I mean, I can go on for ages. You have to stop. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you try to find consensus, and then you also try to. To there's you know some fathers are kind of have more cachet than others or are worth more than others so you particular you want to find um, the uh, the kind of more major <laughs> the major um, fathers so in particular so the anti Nicene fathers those are really good so the closer that you can get to to Christ that's always good because then you don't have this kind of um, you know, time has all of its accretions and people get the wrong ideas, etc. So you don't have that kind of impurity. Um, but also, so the major fathers that you really want to have on your side would be the four Western fathers, which would be um, Gregory the Great, who you mentioned earlier, um, Ambrose, Jerome, Augustine is really also a really heavy hitter here. And then you also have the, the three Eastern fathers, which are um, Basil, John Chrysostom, and Gregory Nazianzen. So if you can get those ones on side, then that's a really good thing. But then if if they if they disagree, that's a problem as well. But yeah, but this was how you established authoritative tradition. This was how you established truth when when people disagreed, because people disagree all the time. 
um, was to try to establish consensus. So in some ways, you know, that was very much a kind of a, a, a way of arguing with a long history. Okay, we're going to consult the theologians, but I can't just come in and bring in a bunch of modern people's disparate opinions where half of them say this and half of them say that. I have to try to establish consensus here. The approach of I'm just going to delete the ones that, that don't speak for me it actually also has a really long tradition. I mean, people always cherry pick what they, what they, what, who, who's speaking for them and who isn't. Is that, that to me almost sounds like uh, Henry didn't fully understand what the printing press was changing, right? And how easily the, is that, is that a fair read of that situation? I should also say, you know, Henry, it's, it's framed as, you know, coming from Henry, but it was, he very much had a team of scholars um, working on his behalf, like Stephen Gardner and Cranmer and um, quite a few that I have to remind myself of all the names. Um, but um, I think you're absolutely right that the printing press starts to make a real difference. I mean, it, it starts to certainly make a real difference in terms of polemic, um, where, yeah, one person is making a pronouncement on this, and then there's going to be several different rebuttals in print that everyone can read. I mean, this is where we have that kind of, it's being argued about, he says, you know, my marriage is being argued about uh, uh, across Christendom, across the, over the high mountains and all that. And so, um, and um, yeah, so that's a big difference that it's going to it then become something that everyone weighs in on. But you still do see kind of older modes at work here. So there's a figure called Richard Croke, and he was a Greek scholar. And he is sent by Henry to Italy to get Italian, um, uh, Italian theologians on side to make pronouncements and, you know, trying to get some opinions there. But another thing that he's trying to do, um, and I don't think that this was something that I mentioned in the book, and I'm just trying to remember all the details now. But um, another thing that he was sent to do was to look at, look in Italian libraries to try to find, now, again, I, I might have the details of this wrong, but I believe that it was perhaps, it was perhaps Stephen Gardner or it was someone else had in their head that maybe St. Basil had said something about this. Maybe St. Ambrose. But there's definitely a really good church father who is sad that Leviticus is the one that matters and not Deuteronomy. Um, and so it's really just a case of like, there is a manuscript in Italy somewhere. I can't remember when yeah. this is one saying it, not just me, but yeah. saying like, there's yeah. a manuscript. Go to Italy and find it. It's by probably Ambrose or maybe Basil or... <laughs> it's, it's probably in venice or maybe the vatican they won't let you look at oh, it in the man. but <laughs> like and so it's that kind of so like there's a there's a manuscript somewhere that has the the key that has the real kicker here um and that if you can find it then you can really make the definitive argument here and so that's very much a kind of an earlier prior to the printing press mode of of, of going about argumentation but it's showing that we have this this there's still very much a sense of you know yes we have the printing press but but the the real juicy material is 
in libraries, in single manuscripts, in this tradition that, that has been kept. And, you know, this is this is where the, the real meat of, of if I can if I can find this and the other side doesn't have it, then that's where I'm really going to be able to, like, have that home run um, argument. Yes. I two things. One is uh, how much I enjoy the way you describe this sounds like some like kids picking football teams on the playground, right? It's like if I could just get Basil the Great on my side, you know, or you know, I just have to, right? Richard Grubb's description of his, like his journey into Italy, and it's just like one disaster after the other, and then when he finds out, like, oh, there was never a manuscript, nobody even. <laughs> <said that. Yeah. laughs> but yeah. But it does absolutely have that sense of like, these are the good ones that you want. And I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't really change. There's very much for Protestants, there's a kind of people tend to think, oh, Protestants don't care about, Protestants don't care about the fathers. They don't care about that church tradition. They don't want that. That's absolutely not the case. And especially, you know, England sitting, um, you know, in an uneasy kind of balance of these approaches um, absolutely still has a huge attachment to these modes of, of argumentation. Um, and um, we can absolutely still see, we can, especially I think, you know, in the divorce where, when it is just on the cusp of, of, you know, early days of the Protestant Reformation, you can absolutely see that there's new approaches, um, but still very much kind of traditional, very traditional approaches. Um, they're very much making the argument in, in, the context of the divorce for the kinds of law in the Bible, which is a Thomistic argument. So yeah, you can, and it's very much people trying to say, okay, what's going to work? What's going to obliterate my opponent? Um, and so it'll be, these are the traditional ways we've made arguments. And then also I have this new cutting edge research on Hebrew manuscripts and I'll, I'll throw that one in. Yeah. I, um, and I want to be respectful of your time. So I, if I could ask you one more question, um, uh, and it's kind of a big one. So I understand, you know, you, you can't get into all the specifics, but even as I look at, at the rest of your book, cause we, we didn't get past the divorce, but that makes sense. Like you said, it ties you in knots. It's, <laughs> it's so, yeah. But, um, how does this, uh, this continual work through these dark and obscure passages, how does that inform and even shape the study of language and rhetoric, even through to today? Like, what do we see in that kind of the, the history of how interpretation grows? You know, you, this, uh, how do we deal with contradictions? How do we deal with idioms and figures? That sort of thing. Yeah, so thank you. I mean, so I, I will just, yes, yeah, so first one is on contradiction, but then the next one's on amb ambiguity, um, then on defects, then on disorder. So like when the Bible isn't in, um, isn't organized, especially when it's not chronological. Um, and then um, idiom, as you said, and then finally the fact that it's figurative. And I think that the fact that it's figurative is one of the, the most intractable problems for people in this period, you know, especially huh. with something like um, the Eucharist is a huge one. Like um, how can you tell basically if something is figurative or not? Um, you know, it's if it says, "Oh, it is like this." Like if 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 Christ had said, "I'm like the vine," then that would be you know a lot easier. But he says, "I am the vine." But but people had no problem with that one actually. And again, this comes back to the fact that so many of these problems that are framed as linguistic problems 
are you can't separate them from um from confessional problems because yeah no one ever had a problem with no one ever said that christ had leaves and bore grapes and that sort of thing in a literal sense there was no argument about whether or not that was figurative the only time people bring in that quotation really of christ saying i am the vine i'm the true vine is when they're talking about this is my body, when they're talking about the Eucharist and whether or not it's figurative. And they always bring that in as a foil, basically, to be like, look, it's right. obvious, you can just tell. Um, and yeah, that is actually one of the arguments that I make, but it often boils down to that. They're just like, I think it's this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so that was the, the one problem is how can you tell if something's figurative? And then it, assuming that everyone agrees, okay, it's figurative, then you have the problem of, okay, and now what does it mean? Um, yeah. Um, so many, all of the chapters of, of my book are really, are focusing on problems of language and how much religion is in, it is, it is a, a religion, you know, happens in language. It also happens in other Forms, you know, there are material sides to religion, certainly, but, you know, in terms of Christianity, it is very much framed, no matter which, you know, um, type of Christianity you're talking about as in terms of language. And so, you know, this is, this is something that people talk about a lot as well in this time is that, you know, God knows that you know, that we need language and that language is insufficient to communicate his truth. Like, you know, it exceeds anything that human language is capable of, but he knows that and he accommodates his truth to the realities of our language. Um, so don't, so often you do see that, that kind of argument of like, don't get so hung up on the fact that language that, you know, maybe it's language itself is causing the problem here and that God, you know, God isn't isn't going to be contradictory. It's just that we need human language. That God isn't um, doesn't have any defects in His truth, but human language often fails, or manuscripts fail, or that sort of thing. So um, th these are all very much problems of language. How humans grapple with language, how we make meaning, how we understand meaning, how we communicate it to somebody else. Um, and in fact, you know, I do. It's it's they're so inseparable. But I do try to as much as possible say you know i'm not i i'm i'm talking about problems or or in uncertainties confusions that people had that were based on the bible's uh, the the phrase that was in the time was the bible's own way of speaking because it's not about those intractable mysteries of religion with, like so for example something like what's the nature of the trinity that's, you know, that God is beyond our capacity to understand um, rather than the Bible itself. Like, so that's very much focused um, on the, the way that the Bible uses language and how people then use language to explain that language. So, um, yeah, we can't get out from underneath it. Um, we need language. I mean, different sects would say we don't, that we can just sit in the mystery and just... Um, let it all wash over you the fact that it's it's beyond us um but for a a text focused religion like 
um, especially Protestantism, bringing to bear such intense scrutiny on the language of the Bible. Um, yeah, you, you can't get out from under the fact that, you know, idioms, like you mentioned, that, you know, language, especially when you're trying to translate something, one language um, says something in, in, in one way and you can't quite get it to fit into the, the exact same contours. Um, even if people want to believe that it can. Um, so the, the preface to the King James Bible says translation is that which opens a window, you know, it um, cracks the shell so we can get the kernel. So it's basically saying that th that's the whole premise of that you can translate the Bible into vernacular. You don't need to just, you know, just keep it in Latin um, or Greek or Hebrew, depending on um, your approach to to textual authority, but um, that you can right. put it in these different languages and you can still have that truth. You can still have that kernel of truth, which transcends language and you can move it from one shell to another shell. Um, so they do say that, but then equally, they they actually say, you know, just slightly later on in that in that preface to the King James Bible that that they want the Bible to speak like itself, like in the language of Canaan. And like those two those two things don't, <laughs> don't right right. Um, so yeah, it's it. There's. Absolutely. And, it's, and this comes out in argumentation over the period as well. There's absolutely this sense that, yes, God's truth transcends language. And so it can move from one, it can move between languages. But equally, language is the only have, thing we have to get at it. And, um, and so it, it's kind of like, like, I don't know, a cup of water, right? If you move it into a different um size cup you basically have you changed the water the water is in a different shape but it's still water um and but also can you have a cup of water without the cup not really not functionally right. <laughs> <laughs> sorry a bit of a strained metaphor we always you know metaphors they can be helpful but they can also be just confusing sometimes and not that helpful but um yeah. they can they can be obscure yes they can be obscure <laughs> they can they can uh, Dr. Knight, um, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, sitting down with you today, thinking through. Um, uh, it's interesting to, you know, uh, as we've kind of I've gone through different historical periods, not intentionally, I've just been, it's, it's just worked out that way. Um, I really appreciated uh, seeing the, the value and the, the <laughs> some of the same debates happening, you know, oh, oh, with sure. slightly different yeah, over back then as they're even happening now. Yeah, and I, I mean, this the, a book about the interpretive difficulties that scripture presents. I could have chosen any time period, honestly. It would, it's, and th that's a, a fair point. Like, these are not inventions of this time period. Absolutely, like, you go before christ you go to the earliest days of of you know you know origin says this kind of thing augustine absolutely so many of the things that i'm talking about uh, that are first are articulated by augustine and how to approach them is explained by augustine but you know people are still arguing about it centuries later um and it absolutely the 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 medieval period has very interesting approaches to some of these things and these keep being 
issues um, and problems. Well, now there's still people still have very intense debates about how we understand the truth of the Bible now. Um, and, you know, uh, I think that, that that's wonderful. I love the fact that, that we still keep talking about, about these, these issues. Um, and I like the fact that you can still kind of keep hearing the same argument over and over. People find the same argument for themselves in their own time. Um, it's so interesting. So something like, um, uh, you mentioned Spinoza, he, uh, a while back, um, he very much, you know, does make the case that the Bible, you should read it and approach it like any other text. Um, but then you also get, um, people, uh, so in the 19th century, they kind of thought that they invented this approach as well. Um, so someone named Benjamin Jowett, um, wrote in, uh, essays and reviews that basically, yeah, you have to approach the text, the Bible, like any other text. And people were like, what? <laughs> so, you know, and it's, you just keep seeing the same observations over and over, but equally, um, it doesn't mean that it's always the same. So another, I, I kind of finished the book with saying that, um, so uh, an early uh, Reformation figure, Sebastian Castellio, um, who ran afoul of Calvin and Beza basically because he disliked and argued against um, the persecution of um, uh, of of individuals by religious because of their religious um, beliefs and that made the argument that you shouldn't kill people on the basis of their religious beliefs um, it, and very much also because the Bible is so difficult. He frames it that way. Like the Bible is so difficult to understand. How can you kill someone on the basis of how you're interpreting it and what your interpretation, what your interpretation is. So, um, you know, that argument looks really similar to arguments that you can get now arguments that you can get, um, in the later in the 17th century for religious toleration. Um, does that mean that it means exactly the same thing? Not quite. Um, context is very important. And the, you know, we can see, see things that everything's always different in the past. And then also things always stay the same. So you can, we can see real points uh, of, of connection across the wide sweep of history. Um, but also, you know, I think when you dig into the the details of the context, you can see how much is is being driven, as in the divorce, by the context and needs of the time. Uh, I want to say thank you and uh, really uh, appreciate what uh, what you've shared today. I think that's an incredible way to end. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>